0: When we look, we find things we don't expect. Some little toehold that can then take you in a whole new direction. It's a long process of chipping away and making really sure you understand your measurements. Putting the picture together, getting rid of the chaff, and realizing, no, this this is really a new aspect of nature.
1: Hey friends, it's a delight to be introducing you to Lyman Page, one of my oldest and greatest of all colleagues and inspiration, a mentor, a friend, one of the pioneers behind the cosmology experiment called TOCO that was the first to reveal the universe was spatially flat. Meaning that any triangle that you could make as big as you want in the entirety of the universe will still have its interior angles add up to 180 degrees, just like a triangle on a flat piece of paper. So he measured the curvature of the universe, finding it to be flat. And that's kind of funny, because nowadays many people claim the Earth is flat. Well, the Earth isn't flat, but the universe is flat. And Lyman will tell us a little bit about that on today's episode. He'll also recount some stories from the famous Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, which he co-led as one of the chief scientists on that program. And if you go to Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, and you type in the word science, which means knowledge, you will see a picture that was produced by the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, uh, which was co-developed along with Lyman Page and his team members at uh, Princeton and NASA Goddard uh, Space Flight Center. And he's just such a mercurial, wonderful human being. I love working with him. He's brilliant. I always learn something new from him, and he's a gentleman, and he's still got that boyish charm, even at age 64, as he is now, stronger than ever, working harder than ever to uncover the mysteries of the universe. So today you're going to learn some really fascinating lessons, and I hope that you'll uh, really... Uh, Enjoy it and leave a comment as to what's your favorite story from our conversation. Lyman's a great raconteur. And don't forget to leave a review wherever you're watching this. Leave a thumbs up. Comment anything will help us in our battle with the eternal cosmic algorithm. And we've grown so much in this year, and I'm so thankful to everyone out there listening or watching Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube or Into the Impossible podcast. Uh, Love you all, and looking forward to many, many great things coming in 2022. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Any
0: sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal
1: welcome everybody to a special edition of the into the impossible podcast i am your fearful host brian keating in this time of pandemic podcasting it is a great thrill to welcome a friend a mentor whether he likes it or not uh professor lyman page who is the uh james s McDonnell distinguished university professor of physics at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. He's the author most recently of The Little Book of Cosmology, which is delightful in many, many ways, and we will get into all the ways that it's influenced me. But I want to start, Lyman, by uh, taking you back 22 years ago this month. This will come out in June, I I think. Uh, 22 years ago is June of 1999. And in that year, you and your team and your graduate students and postdocs released a paper. And that paper uh, had a very understated title. And the title uh, had to do with a measurement of the angular power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background between multipoles of 100 and 400. What is that paper? What was that paper? What does it mean to cosmology? What did it reveal about the universe that no one ever knew before you and your collaborators and teammates made that measurement?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for remembering the paper. Yeah. So it was uh, Amber Miller's uh, paper, and uh, that was sort of the core of her thesis. Um, so this was uh, a, a measurement, actually the, the paper combined a number of measurements we'd made over the years, and the last one was uh, an ex- uh, from the TOCO experiment that we uh, did in Chile with with the crew there with, with uh, Mark Devlin at Penn, and what we were able to do is is map out the position and amplitude of the first peak in the microwave background and we were able to show that it uh we're pretty sure it was from the cosmic microwave background because it had the right spectrum uh we had a lot of redundancy built into the you know to the measurement um Matched really well with our earlier measurements where we saw the rise of the peak and sort of went over in this experiment because we have gone to higher frequencies and smaller um, beams, we could get over the peak. And what the position of the peak told us is that the geometry of the universe is flat, given reasonable assumptions about the uh, Hubble constant. So we were, yeah, I was a little understated, but we, we wanted to, uh, you know, I, I think these days of course we would have put out such a paper with parameter estimates, but we wanted to just stick really closely to the data and and get it out there. And as, as you know, it's a very competitive time. There are a lot of other other groups that uh, the boomerang guys were gearing up. But we had this great measurement. And yeah, no, we were quite proud of it.
1: <clears throat> and when you look at that, uh, I remember that being sort of the holy grail of cosmology at that time, at least in the experimental capacity, yeah. that everybody wanted to measure it. Everybody wanted to make this measurement of the geometry of the universe, and why not? Because you know, the last person who had made such substantial contributions to measuring geometry was you know Aristophanes and you know Aristarchus <laughs> and uh, Samos, <clears throat> and you guys were doing similar things. Um, and you know, kind of made me wonder what what about uh, cosmology today uh is is really tantamount to that that is sort of expected on one hand you know that we we thought the universe was likely to be consistent with the flat universe from arguments going back to Dickey and, and others right. uh, but also that the universe you know had some surprises up its sleeve as, as we would find out around that time as well dark energy etc well, is there anything analogous in 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 and our field of experimental cosmology that's sort of a, a known unknown or maybe an unknown known uh, that will uh, that inspires us the way that you felt back then as a as a young professor younger professor um, you know that's sort of tantamount to that or, or equivalent to that is there anything or are we just in a different phase where now we're just you know getting the eighth decimal place of numbers as uh, Rutherford would say
0: yeah no no I'd say it's still it's very dynamic and fun and exciting field I, I think maybe the thing closest to that is the, uh, you know, the sum of neutrino masses hmm. um, because we know it has to be something. We don't, we don't know exactly what it is, and it's, we can see a path there. We just have to make better and better measurements. Something that is um, maybe like that, depending on your theoretical prejudice. You know, are, are finding uh, primordial B modes, you know, but I think they're, uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone would be surprised if they didn't exist at measurable levels, you know, it just at levels above the foregrounds, so.
1: So in the past couple of months, maybe six months ago, I had Giant Narlaar, who
0: mm-hmm. used
1: to come to UCSD in this very office where I'm at now, and you've been here a few times, but this office where I'm at now is a uh, former uh, home of Jeffrey Burbage. Uh-huh. And Jeff Burbage, uh, my late great colleague, was uh, the close friend and colleague of Fred Hoyle. Who is a character in the uh, field of yeah. cosmology, Titanic theoretical astrophysicist, and I would say that uh, still to this day, Giant believes in the steady state or the variance thereof. Um, I would I would ask you, you know, you, and and he's not an uh, ill-informed person. I mean, he can answer. Right. Uh, he his he did foundational contributions, in gravity, and uh, and also in stellar nucleosynthesis and things like that what would you say to somebody like that? He's not a flat earther. He's not an anti-vaxxer. He's not a global warming denier. What do you say to somebody, Lyman, as one of the world's foremost preeminent um, experimentalists? How can you or can you not convince somebody of the reality of the you know, origin of the universe, at least in the, in the fact that it was once extremely hot, dense, and it had a Big Bang-like characteristic, if not a singularity, something very, very uh, unlike what we exist in today?
0: I said uh, probably approach it on two fronts, maybe on the the really basic front. We know it was hotter in the past just from looking at the SC signature, which is now measured with high significance, you know, just the ratio between frequencies as you go back and redshift. I think that's, that's a measurement, right? And if you have a different model, you have to be able to explain that some well. The data fit the idea of a hotter universe in the past brilliantly. across multiple experiments. That's, that's important. Um, You need to come up with something special to do that. In terms of things like the spatial structure, you know, there is this, um, I think it was um, uh, Neil Turok and maybe Rob Crittenden were pushing this idea that you could create, um, you, you, you could make all the Patterns we see in the microwave background from causal processes within the horizon, and that would be fine. And then it was my colleague and friend uh, Dave Spurgle, and I. Well, I should remember who we did this other work with, right? That point maybe is Matthias or something. Pointed out that the uh, that that wouldn't be the case for the temperature polarization cross correlation at large angular scales because in order to make that, you really have to have super horizon fluctuations. You know, because in anyone's model, opposite sides of the universe can't have talked to each other in any reasonable amount, you know, amount of time. So, so to get a correlation on huge angular scales takes a very special condition. And, and so then the chain is that, you know, if, uh, there have to be super horizon fluctuations, our our cosmic horizon is you know expands into them. We see them, and so this correlation between polarization and temperature. Then of course was we measured it with WMAP. So I'd say those are two pretty difficult observations to explain. Mm-hmm. And they're both really deep, right? I mean they're they're. You really have to push something to explain those because um, it's it's not in one spot in the universe. It's the whole universe is like that in terms of clusters going back. It's not any one group of clusters. It's all clusters that do this.
1: Mm. And when you look at... Um... You know our friends, uh, you know across the alley over there at the Institute for Advanced Study or elsewhere, where they spend a lot of time thinking about theories of everything, string theories. I've had on Juan Maldacena and uh, and others, um, and and you know there's kind of this quest for an underlying description that will unify all the laws of nature in one law that, as my guest this past month, uh, Michio Kaku said, it will be the God equation, an equation that will fit in one inch long uh, font, uh, and that will uh, represent all the laws of nature. Is there an analog, an experiment? Is there like a decisive experiment? Is there an experiment that would garner the headlines and, and sort of the attention of the world the way that our theorist colleagues enjoy uh, attention, or is experiment of a different character? How, how do you view experiments in this way of, of they're essential to validating theories but we don't seem to get as much attention, uh, and I'm not complaining. I get plenty of attention. Uh, <laughs> maybe too much, my, my, <laughs> my, my, some of my colleagues would argue. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but um, why is it that that experiment doesn't get more attention? Or, or maybe, it, maybe that's a, a, an okay thing from your perspective.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe we're just not as good talking about it. You know, I think there are um, – so are there analogs? I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure. Is there a theory of everything? I mean, I'm sure there are advances, you know. I mean, I, I can fully believe my theoretical colleagues will figure out a way to tie in gravity and and the you know the standard model of particle physics at some point. It may take a while, but they'll get there. So, and is that itself a theory of everything? I'm not so sure. It seems <laughs> it seems always seems to be another layer. Analog in uh For experiment you know i you know i think maybe this is just an experimentalist point of view when we look we find things we don't expect
1: Mm.
0: always Mm -hmm. there's always something little new some little toehold that can then take you in a whole new direction Mm. and and it's uh, you know it's a it's a long process of chipping away and making really sure you understand your measurements, and and then slowly you know pu- putting the picture together, getting rid of the chaff, and realizing no this this is really a new aspect of nature, and you know and then theorists compile on. <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, there is that element that's always that's always going on. And and you can and, you know, I mean, the rate at which you forget theories that weren't quite right is huge. Right. And you, and you can even see this in the, you know, just in the more standard things, you can say in the microwave background. Right. Although the foundations were laid out a long time ago. um, You know, there were tons and tons and tons of other theories that just increasingly didn't fit the data didn't fit the data didn't fit the data mm-hmm. and if the universe had been different we would have been forgetting about all the theories we <laughs> that we take for granted now and you know and i think in a, astro this happens all the time right i mean yeah a quasar right i mean yeah. what i mean what i mean what where did this come from in particle physics it would happen you know i mean these uh, uh neutrinos weren't dreamed up out of nothing <laughs> right? Know? I mean, what happened, you know, I mean, that, you know, neutrinos had mass was a possibility that they had, that they, that the mass eigenstates were the flavor eigenstates. I mean, who, this, these are discoveries on how nature is. And so I, it's dynamic. The time scales are just much different. And um, so I'd say there's, in that sense, it's just, uh, it's. We're measuring things better. So, there isn't a, I don't think there is an analog. And I, I don't think uh, you'd have to be maybe a little myopic. Maybe if you're in your field, there's a magic measurement. But I think in general, no, there's just, there's too much nature out there to understand
1: better and more deeply. So. So, uh, speaking of eminent theoreticians and experiment, um, quote by Paul Dirac, and he said, I think there is a moral to the story, namely, that it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment, it seems. It seems that if one is working from the point of view of getting beauty in one's equations, and if one really has sound insight, one is on a sure line of progress. How do you react to that? That it's more important that sort of the, the theory be beautiful? Because a lot of my colleagues in theory that aren't string theorists assail string theory as being lost in math, as one book recently put it. Uh, or not even wrong, as another book put it. Um, what do you make of this, that, that some theorists say that by virtue of the beauty, the elegance of it? And as your colleague, well, maybe uh, I don't never fully understood how the Institute relates to, to Prince, it, but as Natty Seiberg once said, um, we string theorists are very arrogant. If we find something beyond string theory... We shall call it string theory. <laughs> so it seems to me that they focus on this as almost unfalsifiable, but a lot of them are, are based upon the notion that it's too beautiful to be wrong. What do you say about that? Uh, is is experiment not the ultimate arbiter of reality?
0: Yeah, no. I, I mean, I maybe I take a longer view. I, I, I don't know if it's wrong if it is that. And that, that point of view just doesn't connect with me. What, what connects with me is as an observer of theorists, of course, not a theorist, you know, if, it's, if it is beautiful and it hangs together, there's, there's something there. And it may not, you know, it may not reveal something measurable today. It, and it may just be an element of something that leads to something measurable in a in hundred years, right? If it's logically consistent and connects with reality in enough ways and other things we know, there's probably something really neat there. And mm-hmm. and it, just give it some time. Let it, let it grow. I mean, these, these connections that pop out of these theories are, you know, they're, they're wonderful to see in retrospect as <laughs> I was just, I just taught stat Mac mm-hmm. and this is, uh, you know, this isn't quite an example of what you're saying about, but I think it's, it's, it's related. Uh, you know, so Gibbs had the, you know, that there was the Gibbs paradox and they're all, you know, the theorists of the time were trying to figure out, you know, they, they, they knew that, that, uh, you know, that if you divided a volume of stuff in half, that the entropy divided in half. Right. And, but they realized that they had to, to, to make that work in the equations. They had, they had to assume the, the particles were indistinguishable, but they didn't know why. And they came up with all these reasons. Right. And then it took, i don't know 20 or 30 years later it took quantum mechanics right this abstract development in another field another ask you know another subfield of physics to see why that was true and all of a sudden this made sense mm-hmm. so i sort of view you know this is uh, you know and, and then you know that was based on math it was developed quite independently i think of all the stuff that 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 Gibbs was working on right so I can just see that happening but it happens on a longer time scale right so it's just all it's all good and works together and I can see the excitement and I this idea of not even wrong just does, it just doesn't even compute for me
1: <laughs> well sticking with uh beauty and experiment <clears throat> and now getting rid of the theory component um what is the most beautiful experiment uh that you've ever been involved with or that you're ever, um, you know, encountered, maybe nothing uh, to do with you, but just an experiment that you feel is particularly beautiful or elegant, uh, or moving to you almost on a visceral level.
0: Well, there's so obvious one uh, for the stuff I'll, I'll leave aside stuff I've worked on.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'll phrase that separately in a, in a separate Yeah, right. L-
0: <laughs> LIGO is a beautiful experiment just, um, purely from an experimental point of view and just the understanding of the noise limits, the pushing of technology. Um, and of course, what it was after. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that, that was beautiful. There are other, you know, and I, I don't think, uh, you know, beautiful experiments don't have to always make brilliant discoveries, like mm-hmm. like LIGO. But I, you know, I think uh, uh, Dickey's principle of equivalence experiment was was another beautiful experiment, really pushing technique. Um, yeah, I, I'm I really like the you know what the Edvash, um, it's keeping in that line with the Eadves group has done. Mm. I. Yeah, I could come up with a long list. <laughs> you know, some of these atomic physics experiments just blow my mind. Mm. I mean, these this precise control, these um, amazing clocks, and now these arrays of atoms, uh, manipulating atoms, really, you know, I'm manipulating ra- arrays of atoms and looking at their interactions um, and excitations. I just, they're... To me they're all they're all beautiful. Mm. And and just things that weren't well at you know, maybe gravity and equivalence were in the cards when I was a student, but not these other ones. They've just taken our concept of nature and our interaction with nature just to whole new levels.
1: And you mentioned uh, Dickey. I wanted to uh, to to bring him up uh, because he's kind of a, a unique figure in that he made foundational contributions to to our understanding in quantum mechanics and gravity and general relativity, but also in experimental physics. Um, did you ever interact with him? Uh, if so, what was what was he like? Uh, did you do you have any recollections of meeting him or knowing him?
0: Oh yeah, no no. So he was he used to uh, fr- first started here at Princeton he had the um, office two doors down from where I am now and uh, of course I met him I'd say hi I, I he gave me advice night and, uh, and you know I I've, so I've, I've worked spent a huge amount of my career on the microwave background by far the the majority of it, but I, I, I've always wanted to do something else. So uh, soon after I got here, I had this idea of, of uh, building an experiment to look at the motion of a really low mass particle suspended in a tiny pendulum to see if there were differences from Gaussian fluctuations. And this was inspired by, um, I think it was a, an Ashtakar paper. Mm-hmm. You get that, you know, a, an order of Planck mass particle, with a couple of fluctuations in the metric. And that just sounded really cool to me. Mm-hmm. So I sort of sketched out, you know, how to, how to do this experiment. And I went and, and talked with Dickie, and he said, let me let me think about this, <laughs> and then he he's calling me back a couple of later,s a couple a couple of days later, said, "All right, Lyman, don't. Here's what's wrong with it. Go measure the microwave background.
1: <laughs>
0: that sounds good to me." And anyway, that was uh,
1: he saved you some time. <laughs> yes, and
0: yeah, Well, it's just uh, and Ed just and offered a bunch of good insights. It's, it's mm-hmm. You no know, here's here's what's going on
1: and of course you were uh, one of the uh, original co-investigators on the wmap satellite uh, it was eventually named after uh, my uh, P- grand advisor a phd advisor right. advisor david wilkinson uh, talk about David. What was he like as a? Uh, I imagine you guys were very close, and um, that he was uh, he cast a, a long shadow on, on the career that that you've gone on to have so so distinguished of a career. What was he like as a as a mentor, as kind of a, a you know a vuncular figure to you and to others in the CMB community?
0: Of course, he was the 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 big daddy in the community. I <laughs> think he trained many of the people. With Partridge, they built the first, you know, experiment to, dedicated to going after the anisotropy. Um, he, uh, what were sort of notable aspects? You know, if you went and looked at our list of astrophysical journals, right? He would uh and this is back in, of course back in the day when everyone just had a wall full of astrophysical journals right he'd just write on each on the spine of each you know the articles that he was most interested in and they were really broad Mm. he liked uh looking at new techniques different ways of measuring things going after different physics you know looking looking for the first stars. You know, I think uh, as, you know, the history of CCDs had an element starting with Dave, except he didn't look at objects with them, right? He got some of the first CCDs to not image galaxies, but to image dark spots in the sky Mm. to to look for extragalactic background light. You know, he's he was working uh, when I first got here on a new measurement technique using Rydberg atoms, looking at excitations of Rydberg atoms to try to make a more sensitive uh, microwave background receiver. Mm. And so he's always doing some of these things. And you know, and then even in in his last decade, he was working on a SETI project. He spent quite a bit of time on it. And this was uh, th- this is this is a project that um, uh, Horowitz at uh, Harvard started, and they were looking, this was optical SETI. So he mm-hmm. took Princeton's telescope, and he and Norm Jarosik and, and uh, um, Ed Growth they made a really uh, you know, fast time constant optical receiver, and they synced it up with one up at Harvard, and they were looking at coincidences just on the idea that if there were extraterrestrial life, right, they wouldn't waste their time with radio signals. They'd be beaming laser beams at us and they'd be encoding it in fast, in fast transitions. So, you know, he was, he was really broad and in in what he liked and is focused on measurement. Um, Also always reassessing. And, and uh, I, Find I do that more and more. I don't know if I got it from him. I'm sure I got some of it from him, <laughs> or whether I was just always like that. But you know, yeah, I can tell you, even in the in the, you know, as we're trying to finish the design of WMAP, you know, as Dave would maybe we should turn this channel and make it just a polarimeter. <laughs> it's like, no day, we've got to do this. <laughs> anyway, it's just, you know, just ideas about how to measure things and what's interesting and always pushing and I think always reassessing um, what you're doing. So mm-hmm. anyway, and just a, just a fun person. Yeah. We, of course, <laughs> we spent lots of time together and.
1: And I really saw sound- my ideas and- I only met him a couple of times. He used to play tennis with one of my father's, my uh, late father's uh, friend, Cy Cochin in the math department. Sure. <clears throat> um, and uh, uh, he was just, yeah, as I say, a vuncular figure. And, and you know, I think that you have some of that DNA in, in terms of mentorship. And, and I've always, you know, been curious, do you have a, do you ever study leadership? Do you study, you know, kind of mentorship or is it something that, you know, kind of preternaturally comes to you, you know, as as your, as your boyish good looks come to you, do do you have a, you're kind of like perpetually, you know, like a 32 year old, Uh, do you, do you, did you ever study, you know, like business or, you know, did you ever work at becoming a mentor? Do you think it's just something, a gift that people have or don't have?
0: Oh man. I, 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 that's so, I've never really studied it. I've asked lots of questions about it, just you know, from and I've heard lots about it from being on advisory boards and from uh, just you know, uh, certainly in for WMAP, just seeing how NASA worked it was a real eye opener. I mean, I, I was just. It, I was in tune with just how that structure worked and how man and how their project management worked and how it didn't work and what you had to guard against and things like that. So it was just a matter of just uh, absorbing it by osmosis and, you know, and friends in business and, you know, hear about fan out and what you have to guard against. And, and then as you know, chair, it's like being thrown in the deep end, right? And you sit, it's, sink or swim in your mind. Uh, so I don't know. So, so I haven't studied it, but certainly I'm I'm really, I am aware of it, how these structures work. It's just something to pay attention to. Mm.
1: Uh, so in your national Academy page, uh, it's, it's, it's fairly scant, but it has, uh, it has some, some interesting information. A piece of it is, uh, is about one of your hobbies, which is, which is sailing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and again, you, uh, you mentioned that, you know, sailing in this is, is, is important to you. And also that you spent a year in Antarctica. Um, are those connected in any way? As you know, you know, not a lot of great things happened to the original sailors that went to Antarctica. Were you uh, concerned at all when you went to Antarctica, uh, from a nautical point of view, or did you think everything would work out just, just fine?
0: No, no. So I didn't sail there. Right. I know you didn't know. Sorry. sorry. (laughs) No, no. So Went, that would be. I I dreamed about it, but yeah. No, That's no. The next question. No, I I just um, I'll, I can just I can tell you how that happened, and you you can. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't, uh, but I will. No, no! Yeah. Please go. No, so I was in I was in college.
1: Yeah, Bowden. at Bowden
0: at Bowdoin. and um, I I'd applied to graduate schools. Half-heartedly, I think I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I, I got into some places, but it just, I just wasn't, my head wasn't there. Um, my girlfriend broke up with me. <laughs> I saw this ad for research in the Antarctic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought That's what I'm going to do. So I did. <laughs> and I <laughs> said, that's a good break. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, and that seemed like a good thing. It was exciting, you know, being in the Antarctic. It was something new, something different. So I applied, and I I got in, and I went down there and took care of a cosmic ray station, and uh, in first to McMurdo, uh, and then went to the uh, South Pole. Martin Pomerantz was the head of the the program. Went to the South Pole, uh, came back to McMurdo, went to the South Pole again. Uh, both times with with him. Second time was with uh, we put in a solar telescope, mm-hmm. and then McMurdo, and then out. And then I thought I would go to graduate school. Then, and uh, I, I spent enough time with Palmer that I, you know, I got to know him pretty well. I, and I talked with him, and, and I, he sort of questioned whether, how much I wanted to go to graduate school, and I did. But, <laughs> I, I, but anyway, I, I ended up not applying to graduate school, and I went and I, I bought an old sailboat and sailed for the next two and a half years. Then I applied to graduate school, and, and that, was, that was it.
1: Uh, now, uh, that leads me, we're going to go out from Antarctica. Now we're going to go off the planet. I want to ask you a question that sometimes I ask people, uh, it's kind of a gauge of your risk tolerance, but, but if I sent you, uh, if I, if I said you can be one of the first people to go to Mars, um, what would be the, you know, would you ask me any questions or or would you just say, you know, sign me up? Are there any questions you would ask me if I said, Lyman, I got a spot for you on a, on a schooner bound for the red planet?
0: Uh, I I just want to check out the radiation levels and understand them to make sure it actually make it there and at this stage of my life make it back. A few years I would, you know, I might not worry about making it back, but the, um,
1: yeah. So that's the kind of adventure you you'd you'd be willing to go on an adventure like that. You wouldn't ask, you know, what's the probability that the that the craft will make it there? It's it's the radiation exposure on like a cosmic ray experimentalist. You, uh, that that's that's great. The radiation
0: is yeah. considerable. I think that's yeah. I, I mean, yeah. looked at that. I I'd so yeah. I'd be in, inclined. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know, if I were. I, I made my wife look good, but if I were to, you know, a time in my life where I had to, where I really had to be more responsible when the kids were growing up.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't.
0: So right. it's not, it, I mean, it's some balance of responsibility and, and, uh, and right. this, you know, and I think I, and it depends how long the trip was, right. You know, I think uh, I, I still want to get back and <laughs> be with my family, but I, uh, yeah, now I don't have right. so many responsibilities that I just, go for it and, I, and definitely i think if you'd asked me after college i would have gone
1: you would have gone yeah and maybe if they try to ask you to be department chair again we can uh, we can no. pull that out uh <laughs> you already did your tour of duty there i've, yeah, I've done it i <laughs> wonder which is harder you know going to mars um now to move farther out into space and i want to ask you about uh about other life forms you hinted at uh, paul horowitz and And some work uh, maybe that that david was interested in but um what do you think about extraterrestrial intelligence do you do you do you think fermi's paradox is a valid one or do you think that we are probably alone
0: (laughs) the universe is a big place i know i don't know what you mean by intelligence are there is there sentient life like us Mm. um it wouldn't surprise me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm an experimentalist. (laughs) I think think looking is important. Yeah. I just think that if you did, I can't imagine there's not life, you know, in some, something we call biology. I, I it's, it seems hard to suppress. And there are just too many opportunities, mm. and mm-hmm. and that we should be looking for it. And in, in terms of at our stage or beyond, it it just wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. It's not something that uh, whatever keeps keeps me up at night or anything like that, right? I just uh, <laughs> i I would just bet, I would bet on it, but not you know not be worried if we didn't find it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, in terms of all these, you know, whatever, ETs visiting Earth, I like uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana's take. Right? <laughs> Why do they always end up out in the country? <laughs> Why don't <they? laughs> You know, I want... <laughs> I, I'm not going to believe it till they touch down, you know, in Harvard <laughs> yard or something like that.
1: Well, actually I looked it up and of all the uh, sightings around the world, the majority are in America but the majority linemen, I hate to break it to you, are on the east coast of America. Oh, really? Oh, well. well yeah, we're on the east coast, though. Uh, with northeast-ish. Uh, but yeah, you're right. There could be some in the south, but but the, the, let's not be prejudiced here. Lyman. No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, so behind you, I think I see a bunch of theses. Is that right? Are those uh, theses? Yes, yes, They're yes. Are, yeah. So you must be incredibly proud. You've had so many wonderful students uh, go on to great heights. Um, do you feel like uh, a student, you know, is something that can be? I don't want to say made because that seems artificial, but but can um, you know what is the right balance of, of of sort of success as a scientist and experiment? Is it something that can be cultivated, or do you need to be born with it? Is is there sort of this nature versus nurture argument? From having mentored so many successful students, we started off the podcast talking about Amber Miller, who's now the dean of all of uh, science at uh, at uh, University of Southern California, just up the road from me. Um, you know, you've had so many spectacular students. Do they come in just you know there's Princeton, or you know, or or is it you know they, there's something that you can do to bring out the best in these uh, young individuals that put their trust in you as their mentor?
0: You know, I. I... I really don't know. <laughs> I do. I, I would say that they are all different. They, they really are. And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, there's some uh, level of, uh, you know, helping people, mm-hmm. letting people, I'd say more is like it, find what works for them and their path, they're they're all great. And, uh, you know, I think a huge part is for any graduate student, not mine, you know, when they leave, you want any student to be independent, strong, disagreeing with you right some of the time, not all the time, <laughs> but, but, you know, just, uh, and and you just want that to go and and you don't want to suppress that. And to really like science, I think it's the other thing. I mean, I still, you know, I, I still love what I do. I'm not <laughs> jaded or about it. I It's a, uh, so anyway, those are the yeah. aspects. So I wouldn't say so. a, philosophy. I don't have a rubric. Or, and I just think, you know, it's, a, it's trying to, it's working with people to see,
1: just, just you know,
0: do science to advance. Right.
1: Yeah. And it's uh, fun to see and gratifying to see in your book, not only some of the guests that I've had on my show, like Paul Steinhardt, and acknowledgments to him and to David Spurgel and Dick Bond, who's been on the show, uh, but also um, uh, also to students and, and postdocs, uh, Casey Wagner, Kevin Crowley, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, many other people that helped out with this book. Let's talk about the book right now, uh, which is um, <clears throat> which is an incredible, uh, I think, feat because it's – you know the, the old line, I think it was by um, Blaise Pascal who said, um, I'm sorry I wrote so much. Um, I would have uh, written less if I had less uh, less time, <laughs> yeah. and so it's very challenging to write a brief history of the universe. You know, uh, a brief history of the universe by uh, Stephen Hawking is like 300 pages long. Um, what motivated you to write this book uh, besides the vast sums of money that Princeton, I'm sure, dropped <laughs> on your desk, that's right, got you out of retirement? <laughs> thank you for sending me the signed copy, by the way. I do, I do treasure. Yeah, no,
0: no. Well, thank you for your. I'm. I'm. Thank you very much for your kind words. The, um. Yeah, I re- So I, uh, I was, uh, very honored. I won a prize, uh, many years ago, the Mark Aronson Award, and I had to, as part of accepting that, they asked me to give a public lecture. And I was, I was really, I was deeply honored. It was as early in my career. And so I really spent a long time trying to put together a story for how it all worked. And it got a, a, a reasonably good reception. And I just kept improving it and improving it. And at some point, I thought I really should write this up. And, it, you know, first it was just a long monograph. And I called it a monograph for years. And then I just kept working on it and, and work on the summer summer vacations mostly. Hmm. And then finally got the courage to <laughs> go to the Princeton University of Press and say would you I asked I, would you publish this? I shopped around a couple of mm-hmm. you know, earlier version and got and there were people were receptive and got some good advice and and anyway I took a two of them and they said sure and uh they wanted it to be a little longer, but I pushed back <laughs> in short was, I thought important for something, for a topic so dense. And so yes. it's, yeah, at least for me, it's one of those things. If you, if you, if you read 10,000 words, it doesn't mean you're going to get it better than if you read a thousand words.
1: Yeah no that's true and there are even studies about that you know you read one you retain one percent of what you read anyway and yeah, I love when politicians talk about, you know, so many millions and billions of dollars. And I'm like, Do you realize they differ by three orders of magnitude. Yeah, like, right. you know, <laughs> if you are, if you retain a, you know, 1% of a thousand page book, it's pretty good as a 10,000 page book. But um, the book is divided into, into many sections. It has wonderful illustrations. It's, it's, it's very well written as well. Lyman. I, I really, I found it so readable. I can imagine, you know, a lay practicing cosmologist. So I could read it extremely quickly, but even a a lay audience can read it in in an afternoon. I mean, it it really doesn't require, you know, the dedication of, of, of a textbook. Um, I want to run some crazy ideas by you. Um, and, uh, you know, add to some of the craziness we've already talked about one of the theories, you know, aliens, that's uh, one of the endorsers on the back of the book, Avi Loeb, another by our our friend, Mark Devlin, who's a co-spokesperson Along with Suzanne Staggs and Adrian Lee of the Simons Observatory, He's at UPenn, is one of your former postdocs. Um, I want to ask, uh, what is the universe expanding into? I have an idea, but I want to. I want to first ask you this question that I get asked all the time, Lyman. What is the universe expanding into?
0: What for me? I, I you the way it? I view it. Yeah. Is I mean it's a it's a. Well, first you have to define just what you mean by the universe. If it's, if it's the observable universe, it's just our horizon is growing. If you want to, if you want some bigger version, it's a we don't know, <laughs> and we can't measure it, and it is so it's it's beyond what we can what we can have access to and you know one of the i think one of the themes of of modern cosmology is that it it's it's really prescribed by what we can measure right and there's a real separation between what we can know through measurement and not just you know multiple, serious measurements cross checks um, consistencies between various aspects of things and what's, and what's speculation. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, you know, I, I love the thought that, yeah, well, well, well beyond our horizon, somehow, you know, different symmetries in physics take over, <laughs> or the universe is just completely different. And those are fun to think about and maybe thinking about them helps inform what we are now. But I think in terms of uh, being able to explain what we see, we don't, that's so far not necessary. Mm -hmm. So in terms, so that, and what is this expanding into? Uh, I'd say our, 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 our horizon is just expanding into more of what looks just like us. And, and you and there's no measurement you can make that separates that from other possibilities. Even though there are measurements we could imp- that we have made that could distinguish them, right? Yeah. We can tell if the universe has a different topology to some level. That's right. We can tell if it's asymmetric to some level, right? These are all things we can tell by measurement. And as far as we know, and when, it, they don't hold. We could tell if, with some bounds, of course, if it were finite,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it just doesn't look that way. So anyway, that's the way I think about. It. So not a direct answer to your question, but I think it's a, a, maybe a re. Uh, Different take on your
1: question. yeah. I, I want to say you know I, I never had the chance to be your student, but I, I I envy your students for getting to have you as a professor. But I would say, and I want to get your take on this. So what I think about this, I think about what is the universe expanding into? Well, if you go into you know the um, uh, outside of the atmosphere, and you're going on your way to Mars on your space schooner with your wife and and so forth, mm-hmm. and then you go outside the space capsule, and you have a little you know aluminum cube, and it's empty, and you open up that cube and it's got about a cubic meters worth of volume and and you enclose whatever's in there you just you just enclose it with uh, and you seal up the aluminum cube and you ask well what's in there well there's about what 400 cmb photons per every cubic centimeter or so alignment Mm -hmm. and then there might be a proton in there in that whole cubic meter Uh, and, uh, the rest, there might be some dark matter in there, but everything else between the dark matter and between the, uh, the photons and the, and the protons and the neutrons and the croutons, uh, is nothing. And that's what we're expanding into. It's, it, it's, it's, that is the nature of what the vacuum of all of space time is, at least in my notion. So would you fail me for such an answer on a cosmology exam? (laughs) Well,
0: you forgot about the neutrinos, but of course, they're not going to stay in your box. (laughs) (laughs) They don't play
1: nicely. For number density, Brian. You're not that's doing right. well.
0: <laughs> that's true.
1: That's, I added the croutons. I mean, I'm, I'm hungry. It's yeah. The number density. Afternoon.
0: You know, it's. Not
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that actually brings me to something I wanted to ask you. And and you talk a lot about the kind of remaining mysteries. And the book really reminds me a lot of Gamov's book. You know, uh, his his writing was was you know he was an expert, master communicator, and one, two, three, infinity, and and other books that he had on cosmology. Um, if you could get an answer, if you could get a single answer and then you're, you know, some Oracle is going to tell you the answer to any one of the questions that are outstanding that you leave in this book is kind of the cliffhanger. No spoilers are going to be proffered, but, but what, what answer would you most like to know about our universe or even outside of physics maybe what an- you know besides you know what, what what stock or what lottery number should you play you know, whatever but but uh, tell me what what about science or, or or cosmology specifically what most would you be fascinated to learn about if you could magically learn this without any um without any effort other than asking the question
0: It it wouldn't be about anything in the book, but even just going to cosmology. I I am just I'm I'm fascinated by this link between you know in, information and black holes and and the horizon. Mm -hmm. and you know and and just how that all works Mm -hmm. and it just you know I I know it just anyway I I would so I don't even know how to formulate the question right (laughs) but it it would be just a a deeper insight to that that connection and um, but you know, I thought uh, uh you know beckenstein's one of my heroes and, and, and i and when i in when I teach my mech class, i do a little section on that just in the in relation between entropies and and black holes and and, and of course Hawking for what came next but yeah, that you know and I, I, I know my colleagues at the institute have way deeper thoughts about this. I would just love to be able to understand them better, but it just seems like there's some huge link there that that we're missing, and I'd just love to understand better. You know, there's just this just the link between information. You know, and it, to, to be you know, it's obviously out there, right? There's the whole. It went from it from bit from Wheeler, which yeah. as a student I just thought was you know, absolutely nuts <laughs> to to now sometimes consuming me. And now, you know, the, this whole, one of the Simon's projects, It From Qubit. Right? Anyway, I, I, I think, so progress along those lines, I think would, <laughs> I'd love
1: to be able to sink into and really think about and appreciate more. Fascinating. Okay, Lyman. Well, we have reached the end of the regularly scheduled portion of this podcast interview, and now we're going to do what I call the thrilling three, where I ask uh scripted questions of my of my uh of my guest. And I'm so honored to have Lyman Page uh of Princeton University, who's been a mentor, towering figure in cosmology, uh recipient of numerous awards, all deservedly so. Uh and, and really just uh you know one of the greatest benefits to being involved with the Simons Observatory, is getting to work with you, Lyman, and and, uh, we never really had a chance to collaborate otherwise. So I thank Jim Simons for spending a little bit of money (laughs) (laughs) so that you and I can work together. I'm sure that's his. Me too.
0: Jim and Marilyn, thank you. (laughs) So
1: now we're going to go kind of philosophical here, and they all involve either the deep future of you specifically, of humanity generally, and then your past, advice to your former self. So here we go. First thing is in uh, in in the future when you uh, when you are no longer with us, you will leave an ethical will, hopefully, which is a, a summary of teachings and maybe wisdom that you have gleaned from your 120 or more years, hopefully, on Earth. <laughs> I ask you, outside of you know uh, your scientific knowledge, which we'll get to maybe in a little bit, but is there anything about wisdom or or teaching or code or ethics that you've learned? In your life that you live by, or or would encourage others who are kind of an ideological heir to your uh, to your knowledge, is there anything that you would uh, you know, bequeath to people like that?
0: Um, yeah, so I mean, they are more there something you know what you do for your family and what you do for students are different things. Let me mm-hmm. stick for the student side. You yeah, know, I, I think uh, uh, it. It's sometimes lost that uh, on, on students. But I I deeply believe there is a a physical external reality, and there are deep truths about nature that you can find and convey. And if there are these, you know, aliens, <laughs> maybe we'll get to meet someday or that well, no, we won't, but in our lifetimes, but who knows, communicate with, they will share those same truths. They will have to share a number of them if they're communicating, mm. if communicating different and that we can find that we can find that truth and through many avenues. But I think that you can is that you can know real things about the world uh, is important to keep in mind. It's not It's not relative. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not, you have a different view. There are things we can truly deeply know. Mm.
1: Very nice. Okay, now I'm going to go a little bit further into the future, a billion years. Uh, and this is uh, evocative of Richard Feynman, mm-hmm. who uh, said, if in some cataclysm, All scientific knowledge were to be destroyed, and only one sentence passed on to the next generation of creatures. What statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? I won't say what he said because I don't want that to influence your statement. Right. I know what I would say, and it's actually based on something you did. And but at first, I want to hear what you would Uh say. (laughs) You
0: know, I said I I would. I I'm not sure. I'd give a sense. I'd give an image. And I I would give the image of the background anisotropy for (laughs) a bunch of reasons. Well, maybe not a bunch, but a few. One, it's not going to change much in the next billion years. Mm -hmm. It would, you know, for anyone who is nearby us, it will be the same. And it, it will be a connection... If if we're obliterated, it will be a connection to what we know about mm-hmm. the well, of course, the universe, but also all the technologies that went into um, measuring it and explaining it.
1: I was going to say the same thing, except I was going to put the angular power spectrum that you measured, yeah. the map, because it actually subsumes Feynman's answer. So Feynman's answer was the atomic yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. And the atomic hypothesis, I'll just say it for my listeners who don't know, uh, that little part, all things are made of atoms, little particles that move around in perpetual motion, attracting each other when they're a little distance apart, repelling upon being squeezed. And at one sentence, you'll see there's an enormous amount of information about the world, if just a little imagination. Is applied now. I want to say that the CMB power spectrum that you measured, uh, one of the most iconic images of all time in science, uh, breakthrough of the millennium in many people's estimations, uh, is uh, is is one that encodes and is necessarily dependent upon the atomic hypothesis, because what makes up the matter. It's, uh, it is uh, obviously atoms and what makes up more of that image is neutrinos and photons and all the other things that go into the universe and unknown things like dark energy. So it would capsulate what we know and what we don't know. And I think it's just, uh, much more rich than Feynman. So take that Feynman wherever you are.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I that if, if you had a map, you could get the power spectrum. That's
1: true. But then, you know, <laughs> you, you know, me, I from- I, I'm not known for releasing my maps. You, you know about me and maps, Lyman, please. Uh, let's not get, uh, okay, that's, that's personal. Okay, last question, Lyman, and then we're done and, and you have a richly deserved weekend ahead of you. Uh, now we're going to go backwards in time. We went forwards in time, 120 years, a billion years. And now we're going to go backwards in time to when you were 22, 23, whatever you were back in many years ago. And this harkens to Arthur C. Clarke's three laws. The first law is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And actually, I opened the podcast, you'll hear with his actual voice saying those words. His second law was that for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. Uh, I like to drop that on my faculty colleagues every now and then. And then the third law is the only way of determining the limits of what's possible is to venture beyond those limits into the impossible. And that's the name of this podcast, Into the Impossible. I'm gonna ask you for advice to your former self. What thing did you think was impossible at age 20 or 30, but um, you would advise yourself on how to do it now that you've had the courage to go into the impossible?
0: What what thing did I think was impossible? You know, <laughs> maybe that I'd be president or something, you know, I, no, I think in terms of, uh, I mean, I like, I would, yeah, what's, what's the way to, I mean, I think it's almost again, like I don't think like that. I think I've always tried to do things that were well beyond what I can imagine doing. Mm. And usually, not knowing it at the time, knowing it in retrospect. <laughs> but uh, you know, dreaming big, taking risks—you, um, um. So you know, I, I completely agree with him that you know that uh, you know, discovering the, the limits of of uh, what's possible mean, means going beyond. And I don't know. Is it maybe you should just start. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine just not pushing, mm. and not trying, and not trying to go beyond, and mm. not questioning, and not, um, and, and maybe just as important as being excited about exploring, no matter what it is. Awesome, and so. Um, You know, whether your mind or nature or
1: just trying to understand better what's going on. Wonderful. Well, Lyman Page, I want to thank you for being not only a mentor and a friend, but a teacher to many thousands of people around the world, a true explorer of the world and of the universe. And uh, and really just just an all-around incredible soul. I want to wish you a happy <laughs> oh, you, uh, weekend Brian. and best of luck with this wonderful book. Your second book, After Finding the Big Bang, which is behind you on your shelf. And I have a copy that you signed oh, for yeah, me yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. a couple of years ago,
1: <laughs> written with uh, Bruce Partridge and, uh, and your colleague, uh, Jim Peoples. Lyman, have a wonderful day. I'm going to run to my group meeting. I'm going to try to channel some of your infectious good cheer and leadership. Lyman, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining thank us for in Brian. The Impossible.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Hey, y'all, just a simple request before you head out to the rest of your day or night. And that's to sign up for my Monday Magic Messages. These are simple, sweet, short conversations that I want to have with you and they entail the following subjects. One is a memory, one is an appearance that I have had, one is a genius idea from around the universe of ideas that I explored, one is an image or an idea, and the last is a conversation, my podcast or my uh, videos with the guest of Du Saman, the guest of the week. So if you'd like to do that, please go to briankeating.com And there's a pop-up, and you'll get to subscribe to my mailing list. And I make it very easy to subscribe to, very easy to leave if you should want to leave. And I hope that you'll find these uh, Monday Magic messages quite interesting. Because as Sir Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I like to bring you a new perspective from the universe of into the impossible. And do so with an eye towards the things that are most interesting. So I hope you'll subscribe. Again, briankeating.com. Sign up and uh, your money back if you don't like it. Of course, it doesn't cost anything. Thanks, y'all.